You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast. I am your fearless leader, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Rick and Sexy Irish Sean. I did some really deep dive into the data of deliverance, and I figured out exactly how much money I spent on advertising, on Facebook ads. We, I looked at all my conventions and all of my you know pre-marketing efforts all the way from the beginning of this whole project and figured out how much money I made, what my return on ad spend was, how many backers I earned. And we're going to like dive into some conclusions that we drew from, from those numbers. Let's get into uh, really this study on the data that I did for deliverance. It really shocked me. I had a lot of uh, fear digging into this data and I was very pleasantly surprised. Can I ask why were you afraid? I was afraid to to learn that my years of work didn't really matter that much and the only thing that mattered was like the advertising we did on Facebook three months before launch. <laughs> okay. Never fear the truth. Yeah. So what so what I did was I took so I received my Kickstarter backer report. And, which is a private uh, thing that only I receive as the uh, owner of Lowen Games. I'm privy to this information because I have to use it to fulfill all my orders. So I get every backer with their email, you know, their their address and and everything like that, and the amount that they spent, the pledge level they backed, and all of all of that. Before you um, before you download that, do you have to like check a box saying that you're not going to share that with anyone? Is there any sort of like legal obligation? Yeah, they they don't want you to share it. They they want you like if you have to. I mean, basically, yes. the 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 short answer is yeah. You have to not be a total tool and let the information get out on the black market or something. I used that information, and I cross referenced the emails on my Mailchimp email list. So we had about forty five hundred emails on our email list after the you know it's like before and after the campaign are really similar because we stopped advertising to our landing page. Or rather, even the landing page, we changed to Kickstarter links instead of sign up for this email um, when the campaign went live. So our email list was about 4,500 people. And we so and I earned about, it was like 4,600 actually. And I earned about 2,200 and change subscribers between March 1st and June 7th. That's when I actually turned on the ads and spent um, a decent amount per day on, on, um, on ads. So the actual data, uh, was really interesting. So what I did was I cross-referenced the emails that I acquired via pre-marketing with the people that actually backed my Kickstarter campaign. And I found that I earned 400. So out of 2,239 subscribers that I earned in the roughly three months, March, April, May, and then like seven days in June, uh, we launched on June 8th. Um, out of the 2,239 total subscribers that I earned at that point, um, I earned 477 backers and uh, from from those subscribers. And the dumb now, um, it's always possible some of, some of the numbers might be thrown off a little bit because of uh, you know if somebody were to send somebody to that landing page and say, "Hey, this game is cool. You should check it out." Yeah, and that person subscribes. Marketing. Right. So the organic is a little bit of a, you know, 
I, I don't want to call it a monkey wrench, but it's uh, one of the variables in here that I can't really account, I can't easily account for. Um, but I will say that ads being on, people getting excited, telling other people because they saw an ad and got into the game and that sort of thing. There's a reason that the organic activity spikes after March 1st, right? And that's because of the ads and more people finding the game and that kind of thing. So I look at all of this as correlated, correlated enough, highly correlated and uh, correlated enough that I can kind of lump all of this together and draw meaningful conclusions. So um, we had 477 backers out of 2,239 total subscribers, which means that, um, so we always tell our clients, you should expect a 10% conversion rate, 10 to maybe 15% conversion rate of people that we add to your email list before the, the campaign to people that actually back your campaign. I had a 21.3% conversion rate. It was much higher. It was more than double what we tell our clients. And um, the return on ad spend, I spent $6,034.12 on ads. I earned $55,947, which means that my return on ad spend was $9.27 in for every dollar that I spent on ads. And in case you're not quite sure what that actually means, um, I should have in theory spent an infinite amount of money before the, (laughs) you know, from March 1st on. But you Um, you probably would have found though that those results uh, trickle down. Um, yeah, the, that, the that first the case, there's sort of a, a cap of ad spend, isn't there, on profitability right, so return on ad spend. And- what Sean is getting at is the, so we spent roughly $6,000 before our, our campaign launched on Facebook ads. And let's say I were to spend 12000 The first $6,000 earned us an average return on ad spend of $9.27 per dollar spent. The next $6,000, so we increased our spend from six to 12000 we might have earned like four and a half dollars in per dollar spent, which is still worthwhile, but nowhere near, you know, there's, there's clearly a diminishing return if you spend enough money on Facebook. Um, you know, so you, you can't spend like $1 million and get $9 million in return, you know, on Facebook. I mean, that's, at least I don't know how to do it. Well, it has, I think so, it has to do with the niche. It's a, it's a niche. It's not a very broad product. So it's going to only appeal yeah. to a few people. So your right. your pond or lake or whatever you want to call it is only so big. And so you, you could put all as much money as you want. But once you sort of hit that the edge of the lake or pond, um, it's just going to start. Uh, you're going to get uh, you know lower lower returns on investment because now you're sort of stretching overreaching to people who who may be interested but aren't quite in that pond. Right. So if I were to, you know, board gaming, uh, the niche is roughly, you know, when you add Kickstarter and United States as the location, you get about four, maybe five million people if you really stretch it as the uh, the audience size. If you were to do that with video games, you know, let's just say board games by themselves, 100 million people. Video games, you've got like every profile that's ever been created in in Facebook it likes video games. So um, it's a big difference. So the, um, the possibility to spend money into an audience, you get diminishing returns. If the audience is smaller, you get diminishing returns faster. Um, you can spend much more money into a larger audience before you get diminishing returns. Um, so anyway, the, so that's kind of the, those are the stats. My average cost per click was 53 cents. A lot of people, which is quite high. 
it, it is quite high. But when you're getting a return of $9, so $9.27 for every dollar that I spent, it's literally, <laughs> I mean, it's it's practically every two clicks. I would get, uh, you know, so, every two unique individual. So clicks. you're, spe- you're um, spending fifty three cents per person, but you're getting back like four dollars and fifty cents per person. <laughs> right. So exactly, and and the reason that this makes sense is, you know, I had a twenty one percent conversion rate, but every two clicks I was making nine dollars, was because our conversion rate when our customer would buy something on our Kickstarter page, those customers spent an average of one hundred seventeen dollars and twenty nine cents. So um, to give everybody an idea of our average for across the campaign, across all backers, was about $116. So um, I found this from uh, was true from another campaign as well. The, the people that came in from Facebook ads actually spent, uh, they were likely to spend more than just the average regular person, which is cool. Um, not much more, $116 versus roughly $117 that came in via Facebook ads, but it was really good. So... Um, you know, I would get somebody to uh, convert from a person who clicked to a person who actually spent one hundred and seventeen dollars and twenty nine cents. Yeah, well, it, it's in this case, it's it's uh, it's the quantity. So yeah, it may only be like a dollar twenty nine extra per person. But that's times four hundred seventy seven people. So you just made about between five and six hundred dollars extra just because of that. That was with Facebook ads. Exclusively Facebook ads was, you know, our only pre-marketing that we did before the Kickstarter campaign. After the Kickstarter campaign launch, we did all sorts of different kinds of marketing, but um, we're looking exclusively at what did the pre-launch marketing do? How effective was it? And this brings me to before March 1st, before our Kickstarter ads really started to hum before I, I, I mean, I had a landing page that was kind of crud, you know, just had like junky art. I think I had like stock photos and things like that on it. I spent uh, roughly $6,873.11. This pre-March 1st, as in like the five years leading up to this point, I spent that much on all of the advertising that we did. And this was, uh, so we spent roughly almost $1,900 on Facebook ads and the rest attending conventions. So we are so I was afraid to hear that I would that I got like a really bad return from conventions and pre-marketing in general because I spent a long time marketing this game and you know just as I was developing it I was also sharing, right? Sharing in my community and I didn't really spend very much on Facebook ads. Uh we did, you know, like I said we did spend some. I spent close to $1900 over period of five years, which I actually have a, um, uh, a particular month that I, uh, pulled out of that, that we'll go over later. But, um, we made almost $50,000 from emails collected before March 1st. So, um, I earned $49,398 from 386 backers. I, um, uh, I earned a total of 2,297 subscribers in that time, like from zero to 2,300 is what, is what we did, right. Um, via, from our email list. And they had, you know, we talked about the post March 1st with Facebook ads, they converted at 21.3%. These people only converted at 16.8%, much, which is still great. (laughs) Only 16, only 16%. Yeah. (laughs) But the crazy thing to me is that 
they spent almost $128 per person that backed. So they spent a lot more. These were all of my people that did angel, you know, the angel investor tier for $750 or the archangel investor for $1,500 or the all in for $149. They were were hungry. They were waiting five years for this game. It's like, yes, now's the time. All in, everything. Take my (laughs) money. Seriously. So if I were to look at just my Facebook ads and say, oh, that was my only expense, my return on ad spend was $26.37 per dollar <laughs> that I spent. Now, we did spend in conventions. So when you add that number in, our return on ad spend is $7.19 in per dollar spent. This includes hotel fees, um, you know, uh, actual, you know, uh, airplane tickets and convention badges if I needed to. So all, all of that together. Some were local, some were conventions like up in, you know, I flew from San Diego to Seattle. I flew to, you know, for, for the Nor- Norwest Con, I flew to Reno for Gamma and other all sorts and of other. Which one do you think produced the best results and you got the, like kind of the best feedback and you, you just got like the, the, I don't know, the most people sign up to email list or which one resonated most? Which, which so, one do you think was most worthwhile? The convention uh, yeah. that was most worthwhile. So there was this convention that I did. Now there, there a lot of them were really good, but I would say that the one of the best conventions I did was BGG Spring. So uh, the Board Game Geek did a does a spring convention, and I actually got a booth, and I earned for the whole weekend maybe fifty to sixty emails. It's not that many, just because the people walking around my booth area. It's like. There weren't like it was a game. It was a convention for people to play games, but the fans that I earned were hardcore fans from 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 that convention. There were lots of people that really loved heavy board games, that loved the idea of this board game, that all talked about it on Board Game Geek and um, things like that. After, I'm sure if my demo was like five minutes instead of twenty, um, it would have been you know, more, I would have had more email subscribers and whatnot. I'm sure that, um, you know, if we had, like, if we did our booth in a way that was like, Hey, here's a free thing, sign up for our email list, get a free token or whatever that would, you know, have dramatically increased our email subscribers. But I felt like we got a lot of backers from there. That's also, uh, we also got a lot of play testers. That's also a very competitive convention for a board game designer because almost every single booth there is related to board games. I'm assuming cause it's a board game convention. So, I mean, uh, I don't know how I didn't go to that one, but I don't know how big it was, but I mean, I I'm, I'm assuming you had a lot of competition in that one. So it, it was probably very hard to, to get those, those, those people interested. Yeah. You know, the tough thing about a board game convention is that, um, you have a lot of people that I, I see people like five times uh, walk walk by my booth at some of these conventions. They'll they'll walk by and just look, and they'll kind of stand far away so that I can't just be like, "Hey, come over here," you know, like a carnival game. Like you're not supposed to be like a carny Step trying right to get up. people to throw darts, right? And um, so, but then like they do another walkthrough the next day, and they're like, "I'm going to go visit that deliverance booth because I was curious about that," and they kind of plan a time to, to revisit. And so you'll get people that walk around and look and like, there's nothing going on. And I remember like talking to my, the, my booth partners on the left and on the right, just to kind of pass the time. Um, I tried not to be looking down at my cell phone. I tried to be like accessible. So if somebody had a question that they, they felt like I would appreciate them coming up and and asking it versus them interrupting me with something did not want to do that. And 
so just, you know, in general, it was kind of slow early and then people would, you know, later seek me out and, and walk right up, um, which I thought was really cool. So it, it was uh, an interesting experience, but I definitely felt like we earned some serious backers that were that engaged in the community and all that uh, up until that time and shared it and whatnot. Um, yeah. It's like that old marketing so. adage, you know, where someone has to see your, your name or brand seven times before they see you. Like when I go to convention, mm -hmm. the first thing I do is I just do a general scope. I walk around quickly, see what's going on. Cause there's so much thing, you know, there's so much at a convention, these bigger conventions. So you gotta, you know, it's, it's like the first walk is the first walk is just walking. You just experience it. And then you, you know, then the second walk is okay. Well, that one catches my, let me write it down. I might go back later. So then, you know, the second walk you're sort of planning your, your attack, attack phase on what booths you want to go to and things like that. And then it takes, you know, and then you, you do those and then you have a third and fourth walk and you find things you missed. So it does take, you know, I I'm assuming it, you know, this is true for most conventions. You're, you're, when you first open it, you, you may have some interest, but it's not going to be as much interest until you get further down uh, through the time and days of the convention where people narrow their, their searches and, and, and go for you. Right. And, um, you know, that does change depending on the convention you're at. Like uh, Gen Con, for example, is a real buyer's convention. People have a, a wad of cash and they're like going to spend all of it. And so they, you know, it's like a lot of people there. So there's like a throng of traffic in front of your booth the whole time. And you're um, almost always talking to somebody, giving a demo and, you know, that kind of thing. That's going to be a little bit different than a game or a convention where people intend on showing up to play games for like four straight days. You know, you'll get a different type of crowd at each. So, um, but yeah, wasn't there, it, was, it was very Wasn't there a convention where you were like on the 10th floor of some building in some obscure corner that no one knew you were yeah. there? <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. So NorwestCon, actually, we were in, um, so it wasn't a board game exclusive convention. It was like a nerd convention. You had uh, area for video games, area for live action role playing, area for uh, board games and card games and stuff. And uh, it was in this hotel that was like five wings. And it was like a Vegas hotel in Seattle where there were like five wings and one wing was like the RPG wing. Another wing was like live action role playing where people were shooting Nerf guns and, and, <laughs> and the board game. Just stuff really inappropriately, the, I'm sure. Right. So the board game stuff was on the 10th story of this other wing. It was like a, you know, you had to take an elevator up to get to this area that was for board games. And it was kind of um, weird. I it, There wasn't much traffic. And I was in this area that was totally blocked. Like you had to walk all the way around to the very end of this area to find me. And it was actually a really great convention, not because the convention served me, but because I actually had a community of people that were initially like a part of my Facebook community or my, maybe my email list. And I asked people, what convention should I go to? And people were like, NorwestCon. And, and so I actually worked my community so that they knew I would be there and they would come find me. And that was why that convention was so valuable. I believe that I turned a lot of people from people who were kind of interested in the game, interested in the theme to hardcore fans that would push me until, you know, we got funded or, or whatever, you know, it was like a huge difference. So it, it's, um, you know, the whole adage, you know, you got to market to people, seven different 
you know, as you, they have to see you seven different times and across seven different mediums or whatever. I felt like the personal touch for the my community changed all of those people into people that backed. And that's one of the major things that I did for all my conventions. I focused early on on, on like organic marketing through Facebook. And I talked about my game on Facebook groups and tried to get people into my Facebook group or to my landing page so they could sign up and then join my Facebook group and or an email list. And I would talk to them and try to get them to be involved. And I got a fair number of people to these conventions so that they could see the game. You know, if they were going to go to the convention anyway, I wanted to make sure that they saw me. Um, I gave my game like a, a convention I never went to. I never went to Gen Con, but we had five groups play our games. Maybe it was six. And that was because a fan, I gave one of my games to a fan that I actually met at Norwescon and he played uh, the game a bunch of times with people because he was at Gen Con. And, you know, I was having, you know, I had a, a baby and I couldn't go. So then after that, we went to, uh, what is it? PAX South. I had the crew over at Love Thy Nerd. They took our game and played a couple games with, uh, with fans. And I kind of coordinated that via my community. And that's why I think those conventions were very valuable. So our cost per click, by the way, for ads during that whole period before March 1st, only 26 cents. Less than half of what I spent after March first. Um, the income, you know, we we earned fifty thousand dollars from all the convention and pre March first ads, and we earned fifty six thousand dollars post March first. And I think that the vast majority of this of this funding hit on the first day. We raised one hundred and forty one thousand dollars on day one, and I think that that caused us to fund over 800%. Um, you know, in the end, we funded like $314,000. And um, so I think that it just, both of those things were so critical that I was really, really happy to see that we, we earned a very, very positive return on investment. And maybe we'll talk about what I did that, you know, pre-March 1st, right? The pre-marketing before I spent tons and tons on Facebook ads. But I wanted to highlight a particular month, roughly a month. This was back in 2020 when the coronavirus was like just starting to rage and everybody stopped advertising on Facebook. Everybody stopped going places. And we all thought it was like the end of the world plague to end all plagues. <laughs> so we we're all kind of inside. I spent, I noticed because we had uh, Facebook ad clients, you know, board games that were going to Kickstarter and they didn't want to, you know, not go to Kickstarter. Uh, this is actually when Gloomhaven was launched on the 1st of April, I believe. Um, so maybe it was May 1st. I can't remember. But uh, Or Frosthaven. Um, and that was the highest funded board game of all time. Uh, I decided, hey, you know, we are seeing tons and tons of people pull out and not advertise and delay their launches and whatnot. I'm seeing clicks are really, really cheap right now. So let's advertise. And we ended up earning, uh, so I spent a thousand, almost eleven hundred dollars of the roughly nineteen hundred was spent during this month. So I spent, I think it's like for almost forty dollars a day, like thirty five dollars a day in ad spend, um, which was a lot for me because you know all this stuff is just coming from my wage that I earn and my savings that you know is for my family to replace things like 
broken fridges and water heaters and car repairs, right? So it was like a serious investment at that time. Um, we ended up spending $1,076.13. We earned from backers, earned from the April 6th through May 8th, 2020, roughly a month, we earned $9,202 from 74 backers. Um, we earned 746 total subscribers during that time. So we had a 9.9% conversion rate, roughly that 10% that I'm that I that I'm looking for. The average spend on those people though was $124.25. Uh they they spent a ton and I and our return on ad spend was 8.5. It's 8.55 actually dollars in per dollar that I spent on ads. So we spent 1100, we made 9200 and those you know people 74 backers gave me $9,200. Um, it was, it was a great move. And yeah. so I just thought I would kind of call that out as, you know, a, a play. and I think I spent, you know, where the rest of this money comes from. I think it came from maybe like February, 2021 or something, you know, I, maybe we spent a, a chunk of money there and I didn't, um, sort the dates properly to get all the ad spend, but um, what do you guys think about all those numbers? Well, when it comes to you know ma uh, marketing, when uh, you know everyone pulled out of advertising, that that's really going to affect your ads because Facebook is technically an how Facebook ads is technically an auction, so it's done by demand. And, and one thing that I've noticed recently, just with uh, Gabe Barrett of the Board Game Design Lab, we're running his ad account for a game he's launching called Robomon. It's a really cool, kind of Pokemon-inspired board game. And we have the exact same audiences targeting Europe and the United States with the exact same budget, but we're getting far better results in Europe simply because the cost per impression is lower. And what I suspect is that there's less people advertising to people who have Pokemon interests in Europe than there are in the US. So therefore, we're getting better results in Europe simply because there's less people advertising in Europe for those specific interests. So that's, I found that really interesting. So it, I think when, it, when you're looking at your ads, there's certain metrics which are literally out of your control because you can't control how many people are <laughs> advertised to a particular interest. So, you know, this is why we have general benchmarks, but we, we don't really have anything solid. But I think that's really important as well is that you can do all you can on your end, but there are still certain things which are out of your control. I have like a few conclusions that I, that I drew from all of this stuff. I actually held deliverance back for a little while uh, because I felt like if people knew what this game would be like, um, th there really wasn't another game like this on the market. And, you know, if somebody had more means and uh, maybe, you know, more experience than I did, th they might steal the idea. I, I held deliverance back for about two years because of that concern. I wanted to be far enough ahead that if somebody else was like, wow, that's a great idea that they would say, well, he's way too, you know, way too far ahead of us. Or, you know, it, it just looked too complete so that they might not even try. And I honestly, I, if I were to do it over, I would still have that same concern. I know that people always talk about, oh, your ideas are a dime a dozen and you should just, it's all about the execution. I actually think that it's about the idea too in, in certain circumstances. And I might be in the minority on that, but I think that that was a good, you know, not, not a bad thing. Uh, that said, 
I, I really feel like the, the first lesson that I would draw from this is that you can never do too much organic marketing. I decided that in order to see this as being worthwhile, we had to really just make sure that people wanted this. And uh, my goal was to build a thousand emails to my email list without spending a penny in ads. And that's exactly what we did. And I built a Facebook group to about 900 and an email list to 1100 by the time that, by the first, uh, when we spent our first dollar in, in ads. And I think that that was a really important part of the process because I got a lot of people that were just excited for the game just because it was an exciting thing to them. And you know, then it, it also shows you there's a demand for this product without ha- putting money into it first, which is which is wise. If you've got the time, you should definitely consider doing something similar. Right. Or, you know, I mean, even with this particular product, there were a lot of people that were like, I think you're crazy for doing what you're doing. And the whole time I looked back to that, I built a thousand emails without spending a penny on ads. People want this. And those people that call me crazy just don't see it. But I have data that backs my my claim up that, hey, people want this. If I couldn't get anybody to follow, I couldn't get anybody to be interested, then, you know, maybe I'm not talking in the right places or maybe people really don't want it, you know? Um, And that kind of brings me to my next point is that you don't really want to start ads too early. You know, Facebook ads like are, we we got a 10% conversion rate of uh, emails to backers from ads that we spent like a year before our our games launch. the reason that it was so high was because coronavirus made everybody stop advertising on Facebook. So my cost per click was literally half of what it um, should have been. And um, the, in fact, during that month, it was only 24 cents instead of the 26 cent average that it was across you know, the entire time span. My return on ad spend was eight and a half. But if everyone was advertising, I think my cost per click would have been like double and my return on ad spend would have been in half. So I think I would have earned like four to 4.25 return on ad spend of uh, every dollar I spent earned $4.25 back um, if there wasn't that kind of special circumstance. And I think that that would have still been okay. But I, I think that if you're on a limited budget, it, it's clear like 21.3% conversion rate is much better than 9.9. And 21.3 came within three months of our campaign launch. So don't start your ads too early unless you have, uh, the, unless you're willing to risk it or, you know, have the money to spend or whatever. Wait till like three months before your campaign launches to do Facebook ads. At the most, I think two months is fine as well. And the, uh, the next one is definitely invest in conventions. They are worthwhile. Go there, get a booth, go there, you know, sit in the playtesting section, go there with your game under your arm and, you know, look for players, especially local conventions. Like Rick and I went to Kingdom Con, which is a local convention in San Diego a couple of times. And it was really awesome to get local people. And I got, that was probably the next best convention for us was Kingdom Con because people, a lot of local backers, your email list and your community building are your number one priority before you launch on Kickstarter. You know, acquire. You need to acquire emails. If you don't bring a crowd, you're not going to fund. It's called crowdfunding, and you need to bring a crowd in order to fund. And that is your email list. Secondly, it's your community. You need to build a community of people who can share this common thing that they all love, and talk to each other about it. 
So Edge, what would you say if someone has been doing organic marketing and just their the needle is not moving, there's just their community is not being built. Would you say that is that a sign that they need to maybe reconsider there's in a demand for this or are they doing something wrong? What would you say to someone like that? Um, so my suggestion, first of all, would be that maybe you're talk you're not talking in the right places. Maybe you're coming across as like a pushy, proddy salesperson. There are a lot of reasons that it might be happening um, that might not have anything to do with the game. But uh, one thing I'll say is that it's really hard to like, you know, there's this game that I saw yesterday. It's about like flipping pancakes. It's really hard to build a community of like a thousand excited frothing at the mouth backers for a game that is, you know, all about flipping a pancake. You know, mm. my game is about being an epic angel in a Christian fantasy setting, slaying demons and, you know, with the saints caught between. And that's something that I think, you know, is just much more like you can like, it's, it's like, there's more meat to that. And I think that people really gravitate toward heavier themes. Um, you know, you look at like dwellings of elder Vale or a feast for Odin or, um, you know, descent or gloomhaven or big games like that. And, you know, Lord of the Rings journeys of middle earth, you'll find people are much more likely to jump around, like to, to form communities around themes they love than mm -hmm. like mechanical interactions. Like, Oh, I love deck building or, you know, I love set collection. Like you won't really find your niche in mechanics. I think you'll find your niche in the theme and the mechanics, like the, the whole package. And so if you're not really getting a community, it's more, I, I would say that um, if it's not the location or the way that you're marketing it, it's that people can't really get passionate about a game, you know, that you flip pancakes or, you know, whatever. And so it, it could be the actual game is just not going to be a huge, in, a huge um, explosive Kickstarter. You know, you've got a game, like I'll mention Dave Beck about distilling whiskey. That's a game that is like a real hobby for a lot of people. So this is the type of things that, that are type of thing that people really can sink their teeth into. It's a fun theme and they can't wait to play it with their friends and they can't wait to talk about it. And that, that sort of thing. I think that that's very helpful. So that's probably in all likelihood why a campaign does well or poorly. It's usually, I find, a result of how passionate you can be about the theme. I do have a, a comment and a question, um, just going back just a little bit, uh, for people who are a little more budget tight or, or, or don't have you know the major funds ahead of time. You know, Andrew talked about conventions. Um, he sort of briefly mentioned it, but one of the things is if you don't, you know, he, he had the opportunity at some places to get a booth and get things like that. And I know some of us can't afford that. Um, so what's really great, um, what you can do is you can always go on the convention's website and look, and a lot of them have those free areas where you can actually play games. They always usually have board games already there. And that's always a great opportunity because you can just pay a general admission ticket, bring in your game, and then you can, you know, entice people to play with you there in that little game room. Um, so there's that option. Um, and then I had a question. I know we talked about um, investing, uh, you know, in ads when, when the, um, you know, when there's less competition. And I mean, this is true, you know, around the world. In fact, uh, a lot of people in, in 2008, when the uh, U.S. markets had some issues and home prices just dropped, people who had money just bought homes because they knew that it's going to eventually go back up. And of course, now, you know, 
the the value of their homes have tripled, quadrupled since they bought them. You know, they've either turned them into rental properties or sold them for for a lucrative profit. Um, in Facebook, um, since I've been banned, um, so this is my question: uh, <laughs> Is there a way to sort of does it does it predict or show you ahead of time what the cost per click might be before you actually run that ad, so you can see how much competition you may have? Um. To answer your second question, the answer is no. They will give you um, an estimate, but you will likely, it's just not even anywhere near accurate. I think Facebook might even be getting sued because they're so you know inaccurate with their, their estimates. You'll get this many, between this and this many clicks, right? So I would not put any stock into that whatsoever. If you were to find a way to target the market in a way that just makes them really excited, about your product, you will get clicks for a lot cheaper than someone else that wants that very same, you know, that's that's competing for that very same click. Um, it all depends on how your product is received. And I would say that, you know, deliverance is received very well or extremely poorly, depending on the community that um, is is advertised. And, it, you know, it's it's a little bit more obvious when a theme can be so divisive, you know, if people love it or hate it, people are very hot or cold about it, you tend to, you know, kind of get a clearer idea of your numbers. But the best way to find out is really just to start advertising, see what your numbers are, and then go from there. You know, the, we have key performance indicators, like how much does it cost per click? How many, how much does it cost per thousand impressions and what is your click-through rate and uh you know how many people are subscribing to your email list and you know what percentage of clicks are subscribing to your email list right so there are a lot of things to measure but every game is going to be different that's mm -hmm. you know after working on what six dozen kickstarter campaigns feels you know, like over nine thousand at this point yeah, I've definitely would smash my my power reader um, or whatever the heck it it, it is uh, at this point. But yeah, it's um, yeah, yeah, my scouter. <laughs> so uh, Richard, you would be Napa um, in this in this example. <laughs> what Andrew? What is his power level? <laughs> I, I, I'm, I, it's over my head. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you are not a DBZ fan. I don't even know what that stands anyway, for. Anyway, the uh, the other question is. Well, I think it was more of a, a thought about conventions where you don't really have much money. What what can you do? And I did this convention, uh, Dice Tower West. I, it's in Las it was in Las Vegas. Uh, it was the first di quote unquote Dice Tower West convention. And I drove, you know, six hours to Vegas. I paid for a hotel room, and that was kind of my my main expense. And I just sat at a table with like a little banner, and you know volunteered myself uh, as a teacher of my game and i got a fair number of people including sam healy to actually play the game which was really critical for our uh, campaign but uh, i mean there were a lot of people that were really interested that would walk in and sit down and i actually don't have an idea of how many of those people became backers but i do have an idea of several very key figures from the dice tower that became backers or just, you know, uh, advocates. I do know that Sam Healy did back our game. Uh, Robert Geislinger, another Dice Tower guy, uh, backed our game. And those connections were made at that convention where I just, I bought a badge, took my game, and I just sat down at an open table and said, does anyone want to play? You know, if, if somebody was walking by, I would just say, hey, 
do you like dungeon crawl games? And, you know, they would, they would jump in. So that's it would be weirdo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, you know, we probably should mention as well, I've, you know, our friends over at ShipQuest, I do know that they go to conventions and they can, you know, basically have booths on behalf of, of people. I think Indie Game Alliance does that as well. There's also another, I forget what, uh, what else it's called. It's like game Crafter does something like that as well. If you, yeah. if you, you know, print prototypes, you can like promote the Game Crafter, but then like promote your game at conventions mm-hmm. and they'll, they'll help you. It's very you. cool. Yeah. And, and don't strike above your, your, or don't punch above your belt level. Just uh, do what you can, you know, is I guess the idea. Don't, you know, you don't need to fly to Gen Con and Origins and the UK Game Expo in Essen and PAX Unplugged in order to promote your game. You know, focus on like, you know, your local board game store's game night and earn fans there. That's what I, that's what I did. So that's the first place I earned fans. It's at my local board game store. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. And if you have a crowdfunding question, we also have a page on our site where you can send a message directly to us. Please visit crowdfundingnerds.com forward slash question. And if your question is a great question, we may include it in a future podcast. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy. Stay nerdy.